We're going to proceed on to the next case, Edgar v. Haynes, and Mr. Kaufman will hear from you first. Thank you, Your Honor, and may it please the Court. This case is about a sprawling system of lifetime restrictions on the speech of millions of former government employees, including plaintiffs. The system, called pre-publication review, or PPR, is, in the words of Amici, an expansive, complex, and draconian hydra that imposes egregious and, in many ways, incalculable costs upon both former government employees and the public. Why don't we keep this case to what it is, which is four agencies involved in foreign policy and national security. We're not talking about the whole government and all the creeping pre-publication reviews that the Amici are talking about. We're talking about the provisions by the CIA, the DOD, NSA, and the ODNI. I think it'll help us to advance the argument to stick within those parameters. Absolutely, Your Honor. So, as plaintiffs have pled, authors like the plaintiffs regularly wait, and speaking to the regimes at issue here, regularly wait months or even years to receive formal responses from PPR offices, sometimes rendering their speech stale because of the delay. They're commonly told they must strip their manuscripts of information that is not classified and that they did not learn during their government employment. And they often decide not to speak at all in light of the burdens associated with submission, as well as the potential for abuse created by the censor's wide-ranging discretion. Do each of the agencies in this case afford a review of the agency decision? In other words, if you happen to disagree with something that is being deleted, is that something you can obtain a review on? Well, the agencies differ in what sort of, what they provide. You can challenge those things, sometimes informally within the agency and sometimes by going to court. Can't you always challenge them in the agency and always challenge them in court? Well, certainly you can always challenge them in court, but Your Honor, the absence of any real procedural mechanisms to do so in the defendant's agencies is one of the big problems of this case, and it's why plaintiffs and others are chilled from participating in the system at all. As Congress has recognized in directing the ODA and I to revise PPR policies for the four defendant agencies, as well as the rest of the government, these regimes suppress and chill speech that has enormous significance to public debates about critical national security issues by the people whose perspective the public needs to hear most. So there are four things that all defendant's regimes have in common that make them... That argument is challenging the agency's claim of national security and secrecy. In other words, if you take the position that the public would be well served by knowing how we handle national security secrets and so forth about that, that challenges the whole policy of national security. But the question here is when an employee goes into a national security agency, they know they're going into a place that is developing and collecting data and has secrets, and they sign documents that say they know that, and they also know that they're not allowed to take any data from the agency or publish it without prior permission. And what's wrong with doing that? The person has total free choice not to go to work for the NSA. Well, Your Honor, I think it's a great question, and it raises essentially what this case is about and what it's not about. This case is not about whether the government may constitutionally implement some system of pre-publication review 
that requires authors like the plaintiffs to submit under some rules and regulations that guide uh, the censor's determinations and make that system overall compliant with the First Amendment. Plaintiffs are not claiming that no such system could ever exist. And indeed, um, the SNEP case, which the government relies upon for, for you know, the, the bulk of its argument, um, did not hold that any particular, any, any implementation of PPR is constitutional. It merely held that the facts of, of uh, pre-publication review is reasonable um, under the First Amendment, but it didn't speak to any of the particular features of the program of the of the regimes at issue, and it certainly didn't speak to the defendants' regimes here. So, just to go back to, to my list of four things that the defendants' regimes share that make them um, non-compliant with the First Amendment. So, first, most of the regimes assert the authority to censor information that is not classified, and all of them assert the authority to censor information that is not learned in the course of the government's employment, which is a point that your honor just raised in terms of what is acquired when these people go to work. And SNEP, Marchetti, all the lower cart decisions in, in SNEP as well, make very clear that uh, the contracts are limited to review and censorship of information that the individual, classified information that the in individuals learn during the course of their employment. But none of defendants' policies uh, limit the censorship authority of the agencies to that group of things. Some allow the censorship of unclassified information. Some allow the censorship What's of What's wrong any with that? Not all information uh, needs to be classified, yet it would be very important to someone who is Can the council hear me? Yes, Your Honor. Okay. My last question to you, and I'll let you respond. I'm not going to amplify on it. My question was focusing on whether the information needs to be classified in order to be justified under the under the pre-publication review, and uh, and uh, uh, so I'll let you address that. I, I've I've assumed that it does not need to be classified, but uh, uh, maybe I'm wrong on that. Well, I think under the case, under SNEP and Marchetti, it very clearly does. Um, and that is well, what the agreement. SNEP doesn't go that far, and SNEP, did, uh, SNEP didn't uh, uh, address this. SNEP basically said uh, national security and foreign policy is a compelling reason, but uh, well, at, but that doesn't address the problem uh, that uh, uh, information collected from within the agency can still be uh, information that the agency does not want the uh, enemy to know, or the another country to know, or the public to know. And it seems to me they can make that decision. And if you disagree, that can be appealed internally. And if you disagree from that, it can go to court. But that's, well, it seems to me that's the scheme. Well, I, I don't think that is the scheme, respectfully, Your Honor, because in SNEP, what the court actually said in the one footnote that addressed the First Amendment question was that the agreement SNEP signed was a reasonable need, means of protecting the government's interests. Now, throughout the SNEP litigation and in Marchetti, and in this case, at J54, where the CIA agreement is reproduced, the agreement, the thing that the authors sign, merely limits the right to review to uh, what former employees learn, classified information that they learn during the course of their employment. And again, that doesn't mean that the agencies don't, might not have things that they consider sensitive that are not classified. But it does mean that the remedy SNAP blessed, which is a constructive trust on profits, profit, and the fiduciary duty that it found existed because of the contract um, only extends to classified information that the former employees learned during the course of their employment. And all of the defendant agencies go far beyond that in claiming the authority to censor. So to, to stand on the footnote in SNEP and say that now we can 
forever and ever censor anything we, we determine as sensitive to our agencies, regardless of whether it's classified. Now, maybe the government's right about that in the end, but that is not what SNEP held. It's not what this court said in Marchetti. Well, how are we going to address that in this uh, case, which is a facial challenge? And we don't have a particular piece of information that you're trying to publish or not publish. Uh, we have a policy set forth in the agreement. And uh, the agency says, uh, we're going to exclude this uh, aspect of the publication because it reveals information that would be uh, damaging to our uh, mission. And, whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, and and uh, and you can appeal that. You say, well, that's not good enough. It doesn't fall within the contract. Or you can say it's unconstitutional. But uh, and that'll get reviewed. But the problem now is we're just speculating what could or could not been said. I think the bigger question is can the pre-publication review cover non-classified information from these four agencies? Well, that is a question before the court, and that's the first reason that I've given why the policies, which are clearly in front of the court now, and it's completely appropriate for plaintiffs to challenge them facially, um, those policies do allow for censorship beyond the, the classified information. And SNEP, Marchetti, again, those cases do not even remotely uh, say that unclassified information is a problem. Well, that doesn't mean they're not valid just because a absolutely address it. I mean, you, you basically have to make an argument that pre-publication review uh, is inapplicable uh, to these agencies uh, for whatever reason. I'm not sure. Uh, I haven't heard yet what your argument is. I mean, the, your first argument, opening argument was the public has a right to look into these agencies and see what's going on. That's the only justification I've heard so far. Respectfully, Your Honor, that's not our argument at all. The plaintiff's argument is that the public has a right to hear what former government employees have to say about pressing national security issues. Let me, let me just concretize this for a moment. Several of our plaintiffs have made allegations that in the course of pre-publication review with, with the defendant agencies, they have been barred from speaking about topics that they knew nothing about and that... Um, they never learned during their, their government employment. So for example, Mr. Goodman, who lost access to CIA information in 1986, was told he couldn't write about the drone program, which began 30 years later. And a system that makes no distinction between someone like Mr. Goodman and John Brennan, who ran the drone program for President Obama, which these, this is, that is how these agencies handle those different people, can, is not a system that's trying at all to tailor the problem or the, the problem to the solution. I, I just I want to try to get, come back to my list because well the uh, authority to censor non-classified information not learned in the course of government employment is one reason these regimes fail. There are three others. First or, or second, um, they lack any firm or binding deadlines, and this is a huge problem. This means that authors submit work. They don't hear from agencies for months and months on end, despite repeated harassing and, and, and inquiring with the agencies about the status of their reviews. Um, there's no predictability to the system. And that failure means that the government discretion to put a, put a even if it doesn't exist, put a, put a particular manuscript that's critical of the government in a drawer and let it just sit for months and months on end and force someone to file a lawsuit, that makes that possible. And that is the kind of discretion that is not okay under the First Amendment as well as the Fifth Amendment. Um, our third reason is that the regimes require submission from all former employees without regard to the sensitivity of the access of information they had during their careers, 
or and without regard to the time that has elapsed since they've been in government, which is something I touched on speaking about the example of Mr. Goodman. And last, all four regimes require submission of virtually anything that former employees write about the government or national security. And that is just a huge category of information. And it is and it, that can be narrowed in multiple ways um, that would allow for um, a little more discretion and a little more um, fairness in the system. Um, so these plaintiffs together have caused plaintiffs and countless others uh, harms and, and the public significant harms by depriving them of uh, the opinions of people who know a lot more about the, how the agencies work and how they can and, and what the policies that are being implemented in the name of, of the United States mean. Now, that doesn't mean going out and spilling the secrets. And, I, and again, I think this speaks to what the government's interest is here. The government's interest in this regime is not to prevent the leakage of classified information, not at all, because this system doesn't do that. This system does not deter a determined individual from leaking information to a reporter, or if they would like, publishing information themselves under their own name, because criminal penalties exist to deter exactly that kind of behavior. So not even the government claims that PPR is set up to deter that kind of spillage of information. What it is set up to do is the more narrow category of deter inadvertent leakages of classified information. And in order to do that, the government has taken a, a extremely broad brush and saying anything that you submit, anything that you want to publish um, about national security that even touches on topics in, in one phrase of the DOD, important to the agency, needs to be submitted. And there are no rules that govern how long that submission needs to take. That means that if I want to, if a, if a former employee wants to write about a, a news issue that's hitting the front pages during a particular week of the year, there's no guarantee that they're going to be able to speak at all if the government wishes to ignore that. And indeed, CIA Director Michael Hayden in his book came up with exactly that answer. He was told by the CIA that he couldn't write about drones during a particular week. Now, this is a system that gives far too much discretion to the censors, and it can be limited in, very, uh, it can be limited in ways that would bring it more into compliance with the First Amendment. And that's exactly what Congress has said. Congress has said this system is out of control. The agencies need to come up with new rules that limit things in various ways, including through having binding deadlines, limiting the, what censors can censor according to what the contracts have required and what SNEP and Marchetti required in the past cases, as well as tailoring the, uh, the submission standards in terms of who needs to submit and what they need to submit. All of those things could be narrowed in a way that under the First Amendment would help tailor the actual system that affects the public and affects former employees into something that's more compliant with the First Amendment. And, and these are interests that are all relevant under whatever balancing test you want to use, whether it's NTU or Pickering itself. NTU is the one that applies to, to challenges to schemes like this that suppress speech in advance. So we, we submit that that is the proper standard here. Um, but even under Pickering, I think you would come out with the same results. Now, I just want to focus on SNEP for, for just a moment, because I know it's such a big part of the government's argument. So there's two things to say about SNEP. First, SNEP, all that SNEP held was that PPR as, and the abstract, the existence of a system where individuals must submit for review so that the government can check for classified information is reasonable under the First Amendment. And that holding does not take care of this case at all, because Plaintiffs do not challenge the, that a system of PPR could constitutionally require them to submit some things, sometimes, for certain kinds of review. 
Um, and the, the reasons we know SNAP held that are, are, are multiple, but the most important one is in the footnote, the court says the agreement was reasonable and all the agreement says is that they can check for classified information um, that they learned in the, in the course of employment. Second, the courts throughout the litigation were focused on remedy and they did not hardly at all in the entire litigation touch on the particular features of the program. Last, the injunction that was approved in, in, the, in SNEP by the Supreme Court had a 30-day time limit to all future submissions by SNEP. None of the regimes have any kind of binding deadlines here. And this court endorsed the binding, binding deadline in Marchetti as well. Second, even if you want to say SNEP endorsed all the features of the CIA's regime, those features don't foreclose plaintiffs' challenge here because of all the things I just talked about. SNEP, SNEP's case was challenged to, I mean, the ability to censor in SNEP was limited to information learned in the course of employment that was classified. SCOTUS um, implemented a 30-day limitation on future submissions, so there was a binding deadline for all the things that SNEP had to submit. Um, and SNEP's book plainly fell within a constitutional submission requirement, as argued by the plaintiffs here, because one, SNEP was in the inner, inner circle of agency trust, and he had left the agency just a couple years before. So these were things that he knew from recent service, and he, he was in the core of what the agency needed to protect, and that's yeah. remarked upon multiple times in SNEP. Um, last, the parties in SNEP, and you can go to the district court opinion to find this, the parties stipulated that the book was based on knowledge that he gained during his employment. So the, the SNEP, just reading SNEP for what it is, you know, the, the government- well, Let me ask you, to, uh, isn't, uh, uh, and, I, and I haven't done a check on this, but the contracts and the uh, policies of these four agencies only covers what was learned in the agency, right? Well, some of the forms that the that the individual signed do, but the policies do not at all. Um, the CIA's policy says it can it can censor any classified information, and this becomes important. Well, because that's a different form- issue. That, that covers even people on the street. But my point is, uh, 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 the policies that is addressed to employees reporting on what they learned while they were at the agency, right? information in their employment. Uh, no, no, that's what, that's our central, our first major complaint, Your Honor. Our, our major complaint is that that's not what kind of the, uh, uh, policies do at all. If, if this court believes that that's how it should be limited, and that's what Snap and Marchetti said as well, then the well, there's is, an, the that, would be, that would be, I'm suggesting, I'm not addressing classified, because I think classified information is has a different justification and probably can be regulated despite employment. But I'm talking about whether an employee, the extent of regulating an employee's report of information learned while in employment, and not regulated, basically reviewed is what what this policy is. But uh, okay, I, I, I we've gone over, and uh, we'll give you we've got you on rebuttal coming back. Thank you, Your Honor. Yeah. All right, Mr. Winnick. Good afternoon, Your Honor. May it please the court, Daniel Winnick, the government. Plaintiffs make clear in their reply brief and again today that they're challenging not the basic requirement of pre-publication review, but the manner in which four agencies have applied that requirement. But those sorts of claims are justiciable only in the context of a concrete challenge to the review of a given work in which a court would have a factual basis to assess whether the agency was reasonably applying the review process. Plaintiffs brought no such challenge to any of the past reviews of their works. And even if the no, court had jurisdiction- uh, uh, you know, it's, uh, we have many, many cases where uh, people have standing and have legitimate judicial interests uh, when their 
faced with this and these plaintiffs clearly are in this process some uh, are withholding their uh, publications others have been in it and intend to do more uh, uh, these people are, are are people that could uh, write a book if if they were allowed to I suppose or would want to write a book and you're suggesting they can't challenge this policy simply because they don't have one ongoing well one point on standing your honor and one more on rightness if I may the the standing issue is that look they, they would certainly have standing for the reason your honor noted to challenge the basic requirement of the publication review which which they're not doing what they don't have standing to do is to challenge the specific alleged defects of these uh, systems without pointing to ways in which they are harmed, not just by the basic requirement, but by those particular defects. And that Can't is they what- they conduct a facial challenge? Not to the specific defects without alleging how they are harmed by those specific alleged defects. And the the harms they're they're pointing to, the, the uncertainty and burden of having to undergo review, the- Well, then you can never have a facial challenge. I, I'm, I'm not a fan of facial challenges. I must say in the judicial system, uh, it sounds too much like a legislative veto, but uh, we have it. The Supreme Court has approved facial challenges uh, in all kinds of circumstances. And uh, uh, so long as the people are interested in and have demonstrated a sufficiently close interest uh, in in uh, in the challenge, and in this case, uh, these plaintiffs are right in the mainstream of those affected, aren't they? Well, I, I think they're they're certainly affected by the by the basic requirement of publication review. I, I don't think we're they've adequately alleged they're affected by the specific defects. But even if they have standing, you know, there is a significant rightness issue here, and this may become uh, clearer as we as we talk about the merits. But you know, as you already heard from from plaintiffs' argument. Plaintiffs' claims in this case rely over and over again on allegations about how the agencies are supposedly applying these policies over and over again. They, they say on page one of their opening brief that defendants' decisions are, quote, often arbitrary, unexplained, unrelated to national security concerns or influenced by authors' viewpoints. And there's just no basis, uh, e even at the pleading stage here, to assess those sorts of sweeping allegations. What we have are the, are the policies um, and the non-disclosure agreements on their face, and there is no plausible basis from those documents to believe that the government is doing anything illegitimate in applying the pre-publication review process. And to the extent plaintiffs want to make sort of speculative assertions about well, what think, some agency- Well, uh, I think your point's well taken in the sense that they are not able to challenge a particular uh, practice that happened to them in the past, or that they are aware of being ongoing with somebody else. But they can challenge, I think, facially the written policy and the uh, perhaps even the agreements. I don't know. So, so if if they had standing, which uh, we don't need to return to, uh, um, the I, I would agree that they could challenge the the policies and the agreements. But much of what they're suggesting here goes well beyond um, what is what is sort of evident from the face of the policies and the agreements. It goes into extensive speculation about how the agencies might do some illegitimate thing like censoring information that is not classified at all or statutorily protected, is completely you know, officially acknowledged by the government and so forth. There's just no plausible basis to believe the government is doing any of that. And those sorts of allegations cannot justify this sort of uh, sweeping sweeping challenge. There's, it, it simply isn't right. Um, it, it may make sense to move to the merits. I, I think some of these rightness issues may become clearer as we talk about the merits. Um, uh, the policies challenged here are constitutionally permissible 
for the same reason as the similar, if not broader, policy in SNAP. Um, the CIA secrecy agreement at issue in that case was extraordinarily broad. It committed employees and former employees to seek review of any material, quote, relating to the agency, its activities, or intelligence activities generally. The briefing in that case, both here and in the Supreme Court, made essentially the same arguments against the provision uh, that plaintiffs are making here. Uh, and both this court and the Supreme Court upheld the injunction requiring SNAP to comply with the agreement, even as they disagreed about the propriety of a constructive trust. Um, SNAP has been understood for more than four decades as establishing the legality of the publication review. Um, and this court reached the same conclusion in SNAP itself and, and had upheld similar secrecy agreements before in Marchetti and Alfred A. Knopf. We think that, frankly, dispositively resolves this case. But even if it doesn't, it at a minimum establishes the constitutional standard of scrutiny here is reasonableness. Um, and the challenged policies are reasonable in their scope, uh, in their substantive standards of review, and in the procedures they entail for much the same reason as in SNAP. Um, in scope, the policies are either similar to or narrower than the one uh, approved in SNAP. There's no question that they require the submission of a broad set of material, um, as opposed to only those publications that in the author's judgment may contain classified information. That, that is, I think, essentially what plaintiffs are suggesting would be constitutionally permissible. But the broad scope is entirely appropriate. No, no author is ever going to think that he or she is disclosing classified information, right? That they would recognize that there are criminal penalties for doing so. But the point of pre-publication review is to let the government make its own judgment with its more extensive knowledge and understanding of what might reveal classified information. And this case reveals the importance of letting the government do that. So there are four plaintiffs here who submitted to pre-publication review. Um, they all had information redacted from their publications. They challenged the propriety of some of those redactions, but they don't suggest that they were all improper. And what that means is that four of the plaintiffs in this very case would have revealed classified information, unwittingly, no doubt, uh, but would have revealed classified information, but for the pre-publication review process that they all underwent. So it, it, that, that illustrates, I think, the, the significant importance of pre-publication review to the government and to the national security. Um, the policies are equally reasonable in the review standards they apply. Both the policies and the, and the non-disclosure agreements make clear that works are reviewed to determine whether they disclose classified information or in some limited instances, information that is statutorily protected, even if it's not classified. That's, that is entirely within constitutional bounds. And I would stress in response to some of the uh, colloquy that Your Honor was, was having uh, with Mr. Kaufman that the, the redaction of unclassified information is not a terribly significant part of this process. Uh, the information we're talking about is withheld under statutes like uh, 50 USC 3605A as to the NSA and the similar statute, um, Section 3507 as to ODNI. And we're talking. Just tell me uh, briefly what, what it was. Uh, I, I was I was talking about what is uh, what is properly redactable under both the policies and the Yeah, and I was about agreement. to ask you a question, and my question basically is, does information have to be classified in order to be properly subject to pre-publication uh, review? It, no. So let me answer that in two ways. First, certainly information that is properly subject to pre-publication review in the sense that it has to be submitted may well not be classified, right? I presumably most authors are not putting classified information in their in their manuscripts. And the point of pre-publication review is to let the government make sure they haven't unwittingly done so. I think what your honor may have been asking is is can unclassified information properly be 
redacted in pre-publication review. And as to that, um, what I think I was I was saying when Your Honor was was cut out was that yes, there are certain statutes that, in limited instances, properly allow the agencies to redact information that may not be classified. We're talking about statutes like. 50 U.S.C. Section 3605A as to the NSA and Section 3507 as to ODNI. These are limited authorities. They, they pertain to things like the names of people who work at these agencies or, you know, for example, the security protocols that might be employed for their facilities. Um, that information isn't in all instances classified, but it's certainly um, worthy of protection. There, there is, we're, we're not talking here about any broad authority for the agencies sort of in a manner unmoored from any statute or from the classification authority to say that they would rather information not be disclosed. Um, and finally, in addition to being reasonable in scope and in the review standards they apply, the policies afford authors of adequate procedural safeguards, including uniformly across all four agencies, the opportunity to appeal adverse determinations within the agency, um, and of course, the ability to challenge uh, review determinations in court and they all specify a target timeline for review while allowing uh, for longer timelines to review particularly lengthy or complex works. There is no uh, allegation in this case um, that's sufficient to support the inference that there's any pattern of delay. Uh, in fact, the authors, the, the plaintiffs here, have, the four of them who've ever submitted to pre-publication review have submitted numerous works, including many um, shorter and time-sensitive works. They don't suggest that there's any sort of systematic pattern of delay with respect to those works. Uh, Mr. Goodwin, who, who complains that one book um, entitled, I think, Whistleblower at the CIA took 11 months to review, notes that he's written, I think, nine other books, and then none of them took, or most of them didn't take more than two months to review. So it, it is certainly true that there are, there are limited situations where, you know, with particularly sensitive or complicated uh, and lengthy works, it may take more than 30 days for a review process. In, in the recent case of former National Security Advisor John Bolton, for example, the district court in, in DC noted it was not at all unreasonable to take four months to review a book by a recent former National Security Advisor ubiquitously uh, discussing his work. Uh, but of course, if authors in a given instance are dissatisfied with the pace of review, uh, and think that they need a determination and that the agency is, is withholding it for some improper reason, uh, they can easily bring suit on that basis as well. Uh, the district court noted that in the Bolton case and, and authors do that and, and get relief in, in those cases uh, from time to time when they're brought. Um, so th there, you know, there is not any basis to, to conclude that these policies are unreasonable uh, in a way that the policy upheld in, in SNAP was not. Um, as the Supreme Court held in SNEP, there are reasonable means for protecting the government's compelling interest in protecting both the secrecy of information important to our national security and the appearance of confidentiality, so essential to the effective operation uh, of our foreign intelligence service. Happy to take additional questions if the court has any. Any questions, uh, Judge Traxler, Judge Keenan? No, thanks. Uh, all right, thank you, Mr. Money. Uh, Mr. Kaufman. Thanks, Your Honor. Just to respond to a few of my friend's points. Um, you know, the government says that uh, plaintiffs haven't pointed to harm coming from the particular features that they challenge. This is a puzzling argument because they plainly do. Uh, Overbroad censorship has led to censorship of things that are not covered by what the government can constitutionally censor under Snap and Marchetti. Lack of binding deadlines has led to chill. Um, submission from uh, submission uh, requirements that are extremely broad in terms of who has to submit 
and what um, have led to uh, our plaintiffs being ensnared in these regimes when they literally have no knowledge that could be subject to proper censorship. So that argument is just simply off the mark. Second, I, I do want to ask. Yeah, but you've got a very difficult conceptual problem. I mean, we, you just can't go around the newspapers or go to your own clients and look at history and say, uh, we're challenging this practice or that practice. Uh, those could have been challenged at the time uh, that uh, the practices were enforced. Uh, what we're looking at is a facial challenge to the agreements and the policies. And uh, it would be helpful uh, if we were focusing that direction, because I think that's all the authority we have to decide. I don't think we can decide. You don't have standing to raise what has occurred in Washington. Well, I, I think that the relevance of what has occurred to our plaintiffs, it makes their claims reasonable in terms of the it allegation might, of it, might, and, it may be a hypothetical, but what has occurred to your clients uh, might okay. put them in the range of standing, but it does not put them in the range of our decision. In other words, we do not now have, uh, uh, take any one of your clients' publications, we do not now have the authority to review that. The time period for that's gone. It wasn't going up through the chain. It was not decided by a lower court. Uh, what we're looking at is a facial challenge, and uh, even a facial challenge that the government believes you're not entitled to make because of this problem. But uh, uh, in other words, standing in ripeness. But uh, uh, clearly that precludes you from uh, challenging conduct that is you've gone through in the past. Uh, I totally agree with you, Your Honor. This is a facial challenge. With it before the court is the actual policies of the government, yes, and that is what yeah, yeah. that is what we are challenging. Not I didn't hear one one argument from my colleague that the defendant's policies do not do the things that I listed before things um, that that I listed in my opening. Um, so all of these regimes fail on those four on those four four elements. I want to also focus on what SNEP is really about. It's about this remedy that is a prior restraint on speech, and that is exceptional. And so whatever the, and, and that was important to what the court decided in SNEP and Marchetti, and, and the way that they limited that remedy to class, uh, things in, involving the uh, release of classified information learned in the course of a former employee's employment. Um, and that is not what defendants' policies do. So if that is the only thing um, that that the, the court sees as a difference between this case and that one. The defendant's policies are unconstitutional on that basis. They also lack binding deadlines. And in SNEP and Marchetti, the court said 30 days is a maximum. You know, my friend says that, oh, one, one book took 11 months, one took eight months, but most of them are fast and you don't really need to worry about this. Well, this is why those allegations are relevant. This is, th these are allegations that plead that the discretion the agencies have without any binding deadlines leads to uh, additional delays in publication and censorship and the ability for the agencies to prefer certain speech to others. Um, you know, my, my friend says that SNEP has been understood for decades to approve of essentially any PPR regime that the government would like to implement. Well, that's the government finding an elephant in the mouth hole, respectfully. The government has certainly believed that SNEP allows them to construct 16 agencies worth of pre-publication review, review regimes that depart significantly from the ones that issue in Stepa Marchetti. But that is not uh, what the plaintiffs challenge here. The plaintiffs challenge regimes that go beyond the facts of those cases and the agreements that the, that the Supreme Court said were reasonable in footnote three of SNEP. Um, last, I, I just want to point out, you know, the government uh, makes this sort of tricky argument about how 
since the plaintiffs eventually published things that had redactions in them, ipso facto, they would have released classified information without PPR. This is just a simply false. First of all, the plaintiffs do not allege that the government properly applied First Amendment compliance censorship standards. They simply say that because of the difficulty of the system and the length that it takes to get a review and the unfairness of the appeals process, they simply decided to publish because it was more important that their speech reach the public than that they continue to fight over things that the government insisted. For example, uh, Mr. Immerman wanted to publish things that the CIA itself had published in the past. The government told him no. Well, rather than fight, he decided to simply publish. And these are things that happen to all of our plaintiffs, putting being forced into a position where because the policies allow for censorship beyond what the First Amendment should allow, they're put in a position of uh, engaging in months and months and months of argument and delay um, or going at great expense into court to challenge one thing um, rather than what they're doing here, which is saying the policies allow too much discretion. The court should order the government to bring those policies more into line with what the First Amendment requires and a proper understanding of reasonableness or NTEU balancing um, so that the author's interests are protected, the interests of the public are protected, um, and the government tailors what PPR, what it says PPR is for to a more reasonable system um, to narrow, narrow to what its narrow interest is in the, in the release of inadvertent release of classified information, for which this is an entirely belt and suspenders approach. Again, I, I really want to emphasize, if one of these authors, as my friend said, did ignore the recommendations of the PPR office and publish their work, and they published classified information, the government has many, many tools at its disposal to enforce that breach. And that, well, as the plaintiffs have know, said. Yeah, I, we understand that. That's the criminal law. And, and of course, the pre-review policy is to prevent uh, that from getting out. I mean, it doesn't do much good if our uh, competitors in foreign uh, foreign company, countries have the information and we just put the guy in jail. I and mean, we're trying to prevent, we're trying to protect the information. Now, obviously, Again, your argument is saying it's too broad and it's not sufficiently disciplined to uh, allow for speech. That's what I understand you'd be saying. That's right, Your Honor. I mean, ju just to take one example, the CIA, my, my friend mentioned, though, books usually take, they might take a couple months. The CIA's policy, without issuing any binding deadline, says that books could take a year or more. Now, this is simply unreasonable. Um, and all the plaintiffs are asking is for the court to say, these, these rules are too broad. They go beyond what SNEP, what the agreement that was issued in SNEP, the remedy that the Supreme Court approved of in SNEP, the remedy that this court approved of in Marchetti, and they need to be brought into line. And just, again, the very clearest ways the court could do that are say that censorship itself is limited to classified information learned in the course of the government of the former employee's employment. Second, they need to have binding deadlines so that there is some predictability and ability for um, plaintiffs to know and authors to know how long review will take in the past, I mean, in the future. Um, and that was, again, and, and that was a feature of the system approved by the Supreme Court of SNAP and approved by this court in Marchetti. Third, the court could say that there needs to be some limitation on the submission requirements. We'll either are on in terms of who has to who has to submit based on the access they had or how long ago they served in government and also what they need to submit. Um, and again, we're just talking about one remedy that the government has. I just want to point out another uh, reason why the government. Well, I, I do notice your, your time, so uh, start to wind up if you would. 
Sure, Your Honor, and I, I appreciate um, allowing me to, to just finish up here. Um, you know, wh one thing that I think makes clear that the government's interest is so divorced from what the scheme has become is, is that um, PPR only, the, rem the mess central remedy under PPR is to take the profits of an individual. Um, and that has no deterrent effect on people that want to write an op-ed for the New York Times or tweet or write a blog for lawfare. Um, none of these, none, an individual who is certain that they're not going to release classified information, most likely because they never learned that kind of information when they served in government, but they want to publish something, they're not really subject to the, to the remedy that PPR puts in place. So again, this is a very narrow remedy, and the tool that the government has imposed is exceedingly, and, and we say unconstitutionally broad, and that cannot stand. So okay. um, thank you, Your Honor. Thank you. All right, we, uh, uh, we would normally come down and greet the council. Uh, we have everybody on board, yeah. Uh, we would normally come down and greet council, as you know, and we can't do that. It's, it's a tradition that's unique to the Fourth Circuit, and we're proud of it. We would do it, and uh, we would mend all fences as we're down on the floor shaking hands with you. Uh, we do want to thank you for your uh, good arguments. Uh, we have two very good lawyers here today. Uh, so uh, the best we can do is express our appreciation now. But uh, come back and see us again sometime, and we'll shake hands with you again. All right, thank, thank you. Your Honor. Thank you, Honor. Right. This honorable court stands adjourned until tomorrow morning. God save the United States and this honorable court.